Either Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hey, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. So today, Paul, we're going to look at a topic that I really care about because I was pilloried on Twitter for having the audacity to suggest that maybe house prices wouldn't fall by 40%, which I thought was quite a reasonable uh, case to make, but people pilloried me. Well, house prices to date look like they're starting to bottom. So I thought we'd go to the person who would know, Cameron Cushart from CoreLogic, and uh, he's going to come on and talk about house prices. Well, good to see what's finding what's happening there, Peter, because it does look like it's bottomed, at least in Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I know you don't like being pilloried, but I guess there are a lot of people enjoy doing uh, it, Peter. So uh, They do. Look, <laughs> and look, look I, I reckon these guys are a chance to be right if we have a major global recession and stock markets collapse and people start losing their jobs. But at the moment, there's a good chance that's not going to happen. So if they're going to be right, it's going to be a, a few years down the track. And I think if you're a few years out in your predictions, your predictions are wrong. What do you reckon, Paul? Look, I never believed the 40% stuff because that's not the history. The charts show that uh, generally house price corrections in, in Sydney and, and across Australia are around about 15 to 20% max. Yeah, and, max. Uh, this is it's coincidental that the, where we're seeing the bottoming for both Sydney and Melbourne is mm. about that 15% level, which yep. is uh, really quite interesting. Yeah, and the post-election effect is pretty interesting as well, Paul. All right, then we're going to talk to Vicky Doyle, and she's the CEO of Rest Super. And I want to talk to Vicky about making super sexy. Is well, it possible? It, probably not. <laughs> probably but, not. But I think what Vicky's going to talk about is uh, – uh, some research they've done that's, that shows that, that most Australians don't care about their super. And it's unbelievable, look, it, really. It is really important. I mean, we, we often, you and I, jump up about financial literacy, but for most people, super's going to be their biggest financial asset. Probably, probably better and, than their property that they m- might never buy. And it's going to last for 40, 50, 60 years. So yeah. it is, uh, look, although it starts small, it is important to care about, and I think steps that the super industry are taking to make it easier, help people, put apps in place, whatever it is, they're all long overdue and very much needed. What, what about a provocative campaign like, you dopes, your super's important, why don't you have a look at it, you're idiots? Well, Something like that. that'd be provocative. Calling super sexy is going to help. Maybe <laughs> getting rid of the name Super, Peter. I mean, it, like, Super's a super but name. It, well, it probably super is now because everyone knows about it, but it's still superannuation. You know, like, uh, <laughs> You've got to kill the annuation bit. The annuation bit's the boring bit. Okay, and then we're going to talk to a lady by the name, great name, Cuddy Felton. Cuddy Felton, she's from Lifeline, and the topic she's talking about is... What if you, and this could be you who's listening right now, what if you have happened to end up being an accidental counsellor, someone who you work with, or it could be you, you might have to counsel yourself, that you're really having some struggles in your mm. either your home life or your work life, but it ends up in the workplace. 
What do you do? How do you respond? What's the best way to help the person in question? Well, Cuddy's got some really good ideas. And look, sorry to be flippant earlier. This is a pretty serious issue. Very serious. Um, and I guess we can all be potentially in that situation. We were in our work environment, yeah. at home. I mean, uh, that's And I think we run away from it, Paul. If yeah. we saw, see it and we just don't know how to bring it up, I think Cuddy gives us some guidelines on how to help someone, even though you might feel uncomfortable in actually doing it. When it comes to house prices in Australia, there's no better business to go to than CoreLogic. And the man we talk to, of course, is Cameron Cusher. Cameron, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Peter. Now, look, I love hanging out with you just for the sake of hanging out with you. But when I'm looking for some direction on where house prices are going, and particularly as we're seeing some positive developments, what I'm keen to see is what are professionals like you thinking about some of the positive signs we're seeing at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Peter. I think our latest indices data showed that at a national level, values were still falling, but the 0.2% decline over the month of June uh, was the smallest in quite some time. And, And I guess it continues the trend that we've been seeing right throughout this year. The, the magnitude of falls peaked in December of last year and has been slowing each month uh, since then. And, and probably more importantly is uh, is what's happened in the two biggest markets, which is Sydney and Melbourne. We saw a 0.1% increase over the month in Sydney and a 0.2% increase over the month in Melbourne. Now, again, try not to get, get too excited, but... It's a similar trend in both of those cities whereby uh, the rate of decline has been steadily uh, slowing and now we see our first increases since 2017. Yeah, so would you therefore stick your neck out and say that the worst of this house price for A is probably over, I I won't hold you down to definitely over, and secondly... Those people running around once upon a time predicting a 40% fall in house prices, do you think they're going to be proved wrong? Oh, look, I think they are going to be proved wrong. We've seen the the Sydney market fall about 15%, uh, the Melbourne market fall by about 11%. Now, we could easily see a a bit of a reversal of these figures over the coming months, but I do think that the worst of the declines uh, are now past us, and, and we certainly think that the market will bottom uh, before the end of this year. Uh, I think the other point to make, though, is we're not expecting a, a rapid rebound in the housing market. We think it's going to be a slow and steady recovery. And as I just said about the, the magnitude of those falls, there's a long way to go for values to get back up to their previous peaks, given how far they've come off, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. And Cameron, in terms of the factors that perhaps have uh, caused the uh, the market the almost like a bit of a bottoming type effect which is what you're alluding to. We obviously had two cuts in interest rates by the Reserve Bank. We've had uh, suggestions from the regulator, APRA, about uh, easing up on some of the bank lending so that uh, it's a bit easy to get a loan. And then we had the election and uh, Australian voters voting no to things like uh, uh, changes to negative gearing. Are these all relevant factors? Would you care to perhaps to uh, go out and limb and say, you know, perhaps one has been more important than the other? Oh, look, I think they've, they've all probably equally had a combination of, uh, of positivity for the market. I think we can see that I think most people were expecting there was going to be a change of government. So I think potentially uh, what that was going to mean for investors uh, come a change of government had possibly been baked into those falls already. Mm-hmm. But then the next the next week uh, we got APRA coming out and announcing that they were looking 
uh, to remove some of those lending restrictions. And then we've got two consecutive interest rate cuts. So I don't know necessarily that, that one's had a greater influence than the other. But the one point I would make is that uh, those APRA changes were flagged. Uh, they only actually got waived through last week. So mm-hmm. realistically, for anyone that anyone that purchased, at least for that first month post-election that came back into the housing market, realistically could have purchased before uh, the election but was choosing not to. Um, so, so I think that's a, an important consideration. I think it suggests that a lot of people were holding off uh, making that decision because there were concerns about uh, what those changes were, were going to do to the housing market. So someone, for example, who may have a couple of weeks ago been able to borrow half a million dollars now finds themselves in a situation where they can borrow potentially $550,000. That impact's yet to be seen in the market because the change has only just been announced. Is that what you're saying? That, yeah, that's exactly right. So we haven't even seen the impact of those changes yet. I, I'm pretty sure that uh, a lot of the banks are, are pretty keen to lend and I, I think we'll see them wave uh, through pretty quickly. And, uh, and again, that should be a, a positive for the market. I will highlight, though, on the negative side of things, we have had the introduction of uh, comprehensive credit reporting, mm-hmm. some additional reporting around that. So whilst, uh, whilst the APRA changes and the interest rate cuts and, uh, and uh, the, the no change of government is a positive for the market, the comprehensive credit reporting, I think, is, is going to mean that there's still a lot of conservatism from, uh, from lenders because... They've got a lot more information about borrowers, about their uh, repayment history, about their credit history, about uh, all the loans that they have. There's not going to be a lot of excuses for, for lenders to write uh, bad loans going forward. So they're still going to have to be very cautious. And that's the other thing people have been complaining about, at least in our program, Cameron, that uh, it wasn't just in terms of what the bank would lend you, just getting the approval and the documentation you've been required to... Uh, uh, put up the banks have been putting people through, giving them the third degree. So, look, it's it's a lot of work out there. I think I guess to get a loan these days, it is, and I think eventually we'll get accustomed to the fact that I think that's how it's going to be going forward. But it's still a big adjustment. I mean, a lot of people don't apply for a mortgage every couple of years. It, it, it's uh, it's something that you don't necessarily do that regularly, and it's a bit of a nasty shock. I think when you go and see how granular the uh, the banks are in uh, assessing your uh, credit worthiness and I think that it may not quite be as bad as it has been over the last couple of years but I, I still think they're going to be very forensic uh, when determining whether or not to give you a loan. I think one other point to make there as well is uh, when we look at the changes that APRA made they removed that uh, 7% serviceability buffer which was a hard buffer uh, but they're still saying that you have to have a buffer of at least uh, 2.5 percentage points above the offered mortgage rate so Historically, before 2014, that buffer was 2%. Mm. So whilst, yes, you might be, you know, people, particularly owner-occupiers at very low interest rates, that's going to drag some more borrowers into the market, it's still going to be a lot more difficult to get a loan than it was, say, before 2014, when that buffer was just 2%. Uh, one la- well, we've got two questions for you. First of all, how much do you, or how well do you trust auction clearance rates as a guideline to the future? And secondly, what about uh, other states like WA still struggling? Um, South Australia is basically going okay, uh, but WA and, and Northern Territory are still pretty well struggling. They, they really are. So I'll start with your second question uh, first. So we, we are still seeing that weakness in the uh, Perth and, and regional WA housing market at Darwin. So 
for example, we saw values fall another uh, 0.7% in Perth uh, in June, and they're now down uh, almost 20% from their peak, 19.8% from their peak. Uh, if we look at Darwin, we saw another uh, 0.9% fall over the month, and the market's now down 30.1% uh, from its peak. And those markets are, are really struggling because of just how weak those economies are. And I think a lot of people moved to Perth, a lot of people moved to Darwin during the mining and resources sector boom. Uh, and, and once that ran its course, they found that they couldn't find jobs elsewhere. We're seeing a lot of people leave the Northern Territory, leave Western Australia for other parts of the country. Uh, when you go to Perth and you talk to people, they're saying there's actually some good jobs there now, but they can't actually attract the talent to, to Perth because people know that uh, if this uh, this mini mining boom we've got at the moment, this commodity prices rally uh, flames out in 12 or 18 months, they're going to be back on the street looking for a job. Mm. And I guess that's, that's really the crux of the argument outside of Sydney and Melbourne. Sydney and Melbourne still have very strong job creation, very strong population growth, a lot of pent-up demand for housing. Uh, you move to the other capital cities, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, they're very cheap compared to Sydney or Melbourne, but there's just not the strong economy, not the strong jobs market to really encourage people from Sydney and Melbourne to move to these cities just because housing is more affordable. Uh, to your first question, uh, in terms of auction clearance rates, look, I think it's important to remember that they are a sample of the market. Um, and, and uh, you know, the good thing about them is that they're a real-time sample of the market. Historically, they have indicated uh, when they're above 60% that the market is going into a, into a phase where it's growing again. So they're not the be-all and end-all, but uh, they have proven to be a good indication of what's happening in the market and a real-time indicator of what's happening in the market. One final uh, one, think, yeah. Cameron. One final one is Queensland. The economic outlook's improving, and a lot of people in the real estate game think it's the it's the place to be for property over the next year or two. What are you guys thinking? Oh, look, I live in Queensland, so I'd love it to be the case. Uh, but I think you know the economic outlook is improving. We are seeing more migration to Queensland uh, from New South Wales. It has a good affordability advantage, but I think the the High unemployment rate is uh, is really the, uh, the big challenge in Queensland. Mm. Uh, Encouragingly, I think some businesses are becoming more flexible about people working remotely. And somewhere like Brisbane, you know, if you need to be in Sydney or Melbourne for two or three days a week, you can jump on a plane, go down on Monday, come back on Wednesday, and then work in the local office. So maybe that's making things a little bit more attractive. Uh, interestingly, when you look at the migration to Queensland, though, it's not necessarily going to Brisbane. It, it seems to be more so going to the Sunshine Coast uh, and the Gold Coast. So people are making that lifestyle play. And it's, it's not just the oldies that are retiring, it's the families actually moving to these areas. So yeah. that will be an interesting trend to watch. Cameron Kusher from Core Logic. Thanks for joining us, mate. Thanks, Peter. What if I told you that I could help give you peace of mind when it comes to investing in a volatile market? Well, I can, and I will at the Switzer Listed Investment Conference in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. On the day, Paul Rickard and I will be hosting an investment masterclass where we'll share our top 10 secrets for selecting successful stocks and show you what to look for in listed investment companies. Australia's best money managers will give you the how-tos and when it comes to building and managing a successful investment portfolio. Tickets for the day are only $49 and are on sale now. So head to www.switzerevents.com.au. Join us and invest with confidence this year.
Joining me now is the CEO of Rest Super, which of course has been a top performing superannuation fund. And, uh, and Vicky's a little bit concerned, like a lot of us, about the lack of interest Australians show in their superannuation. Thanks for joining us, Vicky. Thanks, Peter. So have you got to, to uh, understand why Australians are so passe when it comes to such an important asset like superannuation? Well, you know, I think Aussies feel pretty overwhelmed by their finances. Our recent research shows that it's just too much hassle. People don't know where to start and they've got too many things to juggle. In fact, Peter, 42% of Aussies actively avoid paying attention to their finances. It's unbelievable, isn't it, Paul? So if 42% of actively avoid, I mean... I guess I don't want to go into solution mode, Vicky. But uh, yeah, go to the what, solution. What, what does the industry and the, and the and what should we be doing about that? Do you think? Um, I think the main thing the industry needs to do is continue to tell uh, Australians that finances can be quite simple. For example, if you are paying for apps and services and memberships, we calculated it was around three point nine dollars billion uh, that people are paying. That's around forty dollars per month that they're no longer using these services. If they just check their bank statement, they can see what those services are and quite easily turn them off, for example. On the other hand, with superannuation, you don't need to understand everything, but the Productivity Commission showed that if you have two super accounts instead of one, you'll be $51,000 worth off when you retire if you had two accounts instead of one. So, Vicky, I haven't actually seen... Rest Super's statement that goes out to their members, but I have seen other ones when people have come to ask, uh, ask and said, "Can you just tell me, you know, what, what I'm paying and all that?" And, and when you look at the statements, you understand why a normal person doesn't want to read it. Do you think super funds of all shapes and sizes need to make the actual statement that goes out really easy to read? Yeah, I think the superannuation statements are getting better, uh, but they are still quite complex. The, the rest statements, if you haven't seen them and you're not a member, obviously, Peter. I'm sorry, quite, uh, Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> if I was, in, if I was in the retail trade, I'd definitely be in rest. Yeah, well, good. 60% of our uh, members are in retail and the other 40% are not, but um, the statements are now interactive. So the best statements I've seen in the industry, which rest has as well, are ones that are online and mm. then they can show you a quick video or they can explain to you what the fees actually mean because on paper the statements no matter how visual they look still are a bit complex. Mm. Um, so given the fact that they're online have you noticed that the actual take-up of members is is stronger because of that? I'll tell you what I have seen is we've got a couple of hundred thousand members on the REST app. And on the app, the people who are on that know their know their balance, know what super fund they're with, and know whether they have insurance or not. And mm. they're kind of three big questions. And I find that the paper statements, people do understand sort of their balance, but don't understand the fees. But those people who are on apps, and lots of super funds have them now, seem to be able to interact on a daily basis, can have a look at it on a monthly basis, and it's much simpler to understand. And presumably the app, Vicky, is just something you download at the uh, through iTunes or the equivalent Android store, is that correct? Yep, 
super easy. You just go onto the yeah the Android or the iTunes store. Um, my app has a you know four digit pin just like your bank mm-hmm. one does. And uh, as soon as I log in, you can see your balance, you can see your insurance, you can see the fees, you can see the transactions, and you can see your investment options. And I think that's where people need to go rather than the you know thirteen page PDFs or the fifty page PDFs. People just want to know the, the easy basics. Once you've got that, you can ring your super fund and ask for more info. Vic, Vicky, I interviewed uh, Sally Lyon from the Financial Council's Financial um, Council of Australia some time ago, and I actually said to her, "How are we going to make super sexy so people actually care about?" It? So I'm going to ask you the same question: How are we going to make super sexy? <laughs> That's a funny question. <laughs> um, I I think. Uh, it's about being simple. Hmm. So um, our highest satisfaction at rest is through um, digital, through live chat. So, you know, when you go onto Jetstar mm-hmm. or any of those sorts of pieces, you do the live chat service, it's anonymous, you get an instant um, answer. As I said, that channel gets 96% satisfaction. Same with the app, very high satisfaction. So anything that's simple is, I guess, how you make super sexy. Mm. Do, do, do you know how many people actually use, and I presume you guys have a super calculator on your website, do you know how many people actually investigate what this super is likely to pay them? Because I, I always figured that if someone thought they were going to become a millionaire because of their, their super, they might actually respect it a little bit more. What do you think? Um, I, you, you do get a... Um, uh, summary each year on your annual statement, but then and there is now some projections. But I, I'm not sure people can focus on their future self. So mm. thinking ahead when they're 65, it's not until people reach around 45, 50 that they start thinking, ah, and I've only got two decades to work. So this super becomes really important. When you're talking to the younger generation, it's hard to make it really relevant. Mm. So um, I think. Also, superannuation hasn't really been sold as retirement income. So I think the simple concept of people understanding that if superannuation becomes your retirement income, it becomes your pay packet every month that will help you do things in retirement when you no longer can earn an income. Somehow, we need to people need to get that sense around that. Then it becomes very valuable. I mean, when you go on maternity leave and... You might go for 12 months or 18 months and you're not paid for a period of time. You soon realise how important that weekly income is mm. and it's no different to when you're in retirement. I, I guess one of the things, Sally, is we could think of a... Uh, sorry, um, Vicky, we could think of a new name for superannuation, but maybe that's a bit too <laughs> far out the track. Just just go back to the things that REST is doing to make it easier for its members. You mentioned the live chat. You've also got this app, which sounds like it's had fantastic take-up. What are some of the other initiatives that uh, you're doing to make Super a bit more relevant and a bit more accessible to your members? Uh, well, we do have Roger. So if you went onto our website, Roger is our chatbot and he's answered more than 700,000 questions. So again, he interacts with the live chat, but you can just instantly ask the simple things like what's our address, um, where, what's your account balance and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm, That's good. made Super heaps more accessible for people and... Recently, we're trialling a um, Roger being in the Google Home. Uh, so for people who are starting to, I'm not one of those people, but lots of people have those devices and Alexa and the like mm-hmm. in their home. Uh, we've started to trial superannuation in there. Now, I have to say um, it hasn't 
you know, jumped off the shelves. People don't sit in their lounge room all thinking about superannuation, but it does get questions through there, and we're doing that because we want to trial any way that people could ask us um, around superannuation through any channel at any time of the night or day they can get an answer because the challenge is most people think about superannuation they go right this is the weekend I'm going to get it out I've got all my statements in front of me I'm going to consolidate them and have one account I don't know where to go and then they think about it by the time they get to it Sunday three o'clock and there's no call centers open and so there's no one who can help them so I think getting to a much and that's what we've done through live chat and the like getting to a more well maybe it's not 24 hour service but getting to being in opening hours when people actually have time yeah. to sit down and do, do it once that's when we need to be open to business yeah i think you're right there because it is the sort of thing that you might reflect upon on the weekend and uh, that's when you want to have the questions and you want someone to be able to help you but uh is so there anything you can do to help in that regard? I think is uh, is, is really a step in the right direction. Mm. And, and I yeah. guess part, part of the big problem is that if they don't show interest in their super, they can end up being in the wrong super for far too long. They also, and this is a thing that always worries me, some people aren't even aware of what option they've they've gone for, and they might go ten or twenty years in a very conservative option when they really should have been in a high growth option. Oh, absolutely. I think nearly half of the people we research have never checked the investment option mm. or the performance. Mm. And, you know, that can be challenging. But I, I think the Productivity Commission, again, did good work around the sense of you don't need to know everything. If you at least have one super account, you can save enormously on multiple fees. And, and you may not be in the highest performing fund, but generally funds, you know, perform well in and out of certain periods. But if you can just minimise it to one super account, you'll be well ahead of anybody else. Okay, Vicky, I'm, I'm out of questions. Is there anything you would have liked us to ask and we didn't ask? Oh, no, I don't think so. I just wanted to mention um, that we had uh, released some recent research also around uh, how much people pay on uh, apps and services and memberships, as we said at the beginning, which is around $40 a month. So even if people tried to start turning those subscriptions off, they'll get into good savings habits for the future. Yeah, very good point, very good point. Uh, Vicky, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Paul. That's Vicky Doyle, who is the CEO of Resuper. What if I told you that we could help make investing easy? What if I told you that your investment choices could be guided by Australia's top financial minds? Well, the Switzer Report does just that. The Switzer Report is a leading investment report with market analysis, stock tips, and broker recommendations. Each week, our experts will tell you which stocks are hot and which are not. To find out what it's all about, head to www.switzersuperreport.com.au and sign up for a free trial now. The Switzer Report, we make investing easy. If you've ever been in the difficult situation where a colleague in the workplace is clearly feeling out of sorts and really needs some help, but you're not sure whether you can actually do the helping, you might think in many ways that you've become an accidental counsellor. Well, Cuddy Felton from Lifeline says this happens all the time and she's going to basically help you understand what role you can play in helping somebody when you do become the accidental counsellor. 
Thanks for joining us on the program, Cuddy. Thank you for having me. So tell us about the Accidental Counselor Program. Well, uh, Lifeline Hubbard Hawkesbury, we've developed a version of the Accidental Counselor Program that is uniquely suited to essentially the corporate environment, um, organisations large and small, and it is based on the really well-known, recognised, respond, refer model. Uh, In addition to that, though, what we provide participants with is a framework, I guess, a framework within which they can hold a difficult conversation. And then, of course, we talk about the skills that fill out that framework. We do also cover really important issues that uh, affect everybody in our community, Mm. things like mental illness, um, domestic and family violence, suicide. Mm. But what is it really about? Uh, I guess it's about equipping people with the ability to really become aware of others around them who are struggling and understanding how to respond to them in a way that's empathic, that's appropriate, uh, that's respectful, but above all, that's empowering. Mm. Because what, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned this recognise, respond, refer model. So just go into that and actually sort of, what what are the, I suppose recognition is the first question. What should we be looking for? Well, of course, it's really different depending on what circumstances the other person finds themselves in. And what we really do emphasise is that there isn't uh, necessarily one thing to look out for. And that the way that somebody experiences their own situation is very much unique to them. So in other words, if somebody presents to you and, and they're experiencing their situation as a crisis, then that's really what it is, completely irrespective of how you would judge it. Mm. Uh, so it's v- very much responding in that moment, responding, as I said, in a way that, that is empathic and appropriate, that's respectful, uh, but in a way that absolutely recognises that we are not counsellors. Mm. We are not therapists, we're not professional practitioners of any sort. So we are not there to fix or to rescue or to somehow cure the person that we're talking to. We're there to refer. We do have to respond. We do have to respond. Empathically. Absolutely. And then other things Mm. in terms of, um, you know, what we need to do. I mean, obviously there's a... Yeah. I've never been an accidental counsellor. I don't think and I hope I won't be in that situation. Mm. Yeah. But there's some things we need to know, I'm sure. In fact, I feel sorry for the poor person who had you (laughs) as their accidental counsellor, quite frankly. And I think before you ask that question, I I think, are you also saying to people who work in the corporate um, setting that they need to be on the lookout for colleagues who may well be struggling? Absolutely. And if so, then suggest maybe a phone call to Lifeline is 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 what you're or, or to the accidental ca- yeah. counselor program? Yeah. Who so are you? Who are you trying to grab to get them to act? Yeah. So this is very. It's a very broad application because it actually applies to absolutely everybody. So from a corporate perspective, this is both about reaching out and responding in a really appropriate way to clients mm. uh, and customers who might be you know, vulnerable for whatever reason or really struggling or or facing huge challenges. But it's also very much being aware of each other in teams of our colleagues, Mm. making sure that we understand that if somebody is struggling, we need to be able to respond in those moments. But as I said before, not to try and fix it for them, not to become a long-term supporter or a therapist, but to try and ease distress in Mm. those moments and then empower that person to find their own way forward to get the help and the support that they need. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, very much the emphasis on it's not up to us to yeah. fix it. So, so Cuddy, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are actually going into corporations yes. 
to talk to teams of people. Absolutely. Basically saying, if you find yourself in the accidental counsellor position, yeah. this is your my suggestion how you handle it. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of teams of people um, are in very high-stress roles. I'm talking about frontline people very often. Those are people who are in possibly collections teams, hardships teams, those people who are taking complaints from customers. Mm. That's a really, really high-stress role and a very high proportion of people that they're talking to will be experiencing some kind of crisis in their lives. Mm. So having those skills is essential. Mm. And is there any sort of data as to... Is the place of work are more likely, you know, forum, forum where this stuff comes out or is it, or is it at home? I'm just trying to get a sense of how, you know... For people that yeah. are having going yeah. through these sort of crises, is, yeah. it, is it is are they more often more comfortable sharing this in a work environment, perhaps in a home environment? Well, you know that's a really interesting question. Uh, can I answer it uh, from this basis? Uh, for me personally, my entire aim in everything I do is to raise awareness, mm-hmm. and in so doing, to reduce stigma. And that's the way, ultimately, with the provision of skill, that we increase safety around those issues. Um, the people who are experiencing things like domestic and family violence, mental illness, breakdowns of relationship, whatever it is, those are people, they are everywhere. They're not only out there at home, they're not only the customer, but they're very much a part of the workforce as well. Uh, it becomes very important that we empower people to respond confidently but safely. Uh, to people who find themselves in those situations. Um, I do think that organisations are showing a real willingness to invest in supporting their staff with this type of training. Why? Because when we all feel fragile and vulnerable at times, every single one of us, and if we have people around us who in those moments can support without taking on the counselling role, then that absolutely is going to enhance well-being, it's going to enhance resilience uh, within the teams. Uh, so it's really an mm. important skill for people mm. to have. It's a life skill. Can you give us an example of a business that's embraced this program and what kind of results they've had? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've been really lucky, um, particularly across the financial services sector, to work across a broad range of, of organisations. I will perhaps mention um, the Mortgage and Finance Association because mm. we've recently run a series of um, tailored accidental counsellor programs for brokers right around the country. And brokers have been under pressure for even political reasons well, in recent times. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's been a really high-stress time, not only for their clients but for brokers as well. So the um, Mortgage and Finance Association really recognised very early on the value of this type of training. I mean, if you think about the number of people that brokers encounter every single year, it's just quite staggering. Mm. And, of course, some of those people are going to be, you know, experiencing whatever it might be, but challenges Mm. uh, because they've lost someone or, or, you know, their relationship's broken down, whatever it is. Um, So brokers have this unique opportunity to be an incredible force in their own communities for good, but the recent time has been such a high-stress time for brokers that it became as well about brokers being aware of each other, being aware of their colleagues. Mm. You know, they don't always work in big organisations. Sometimes they're one- and two-man businesses. Mm. So being very much more aware who is struggling, is somebody out there that, you know, needs some support and not, as I say, not therapy from the broker, Mm. but just a response that is safe Mm. um, and empowers them. And I have to tell you very shortly after 
those sessions, one of the responses that stood out for me so clearly was a broker who contacted us and to express not only his gratitude to the MFAA, but his intense relief that he had been provided with this training because he had mm. a customer who was talking about suicide. Mm. And the training provided him with the confidence and the ability mm. to connect that customer with hope and with help. Is the, the problem in uh, the workplace um, becoming more intense because of the proliferation of drugs in the community, recreational drugs, and the fact that just about everywhere we go in the broken community knows us even well, there's alcohol everywhere now, and it's very hard to escape. Do you think this is actually making the the problems more difficult for people to handle? You know, it's really interesting because both drugs and alcohol, for some people, are absolutely a cause of crisis, Mm. but for other people, they're a consequence of crisis. Mm. In Mm. other words, an almost maladaptive way of coping with their Mm. crisis situations. Self-medication. Yes, Mm. absolutely. Mm. Um, So that does make it incredibly difficult. Well... I guess what's the call to action? I mean, mm. for an employer or yeah, you know, someone listening to what the, our broadcast today, what should would you like them to do? Oh, you know, from my perspective, if I'm talking to an employer who wants to make a real direct mm-hmm. difference to their employees, it certainly does come. Um, a part of that is providing these kind of life skills, this training that gives these life skills to the employees, because when you do that, you create a culture within the organization that really does start to value things like respect, like dignity, like empowerment. Uh, When you do that as well, these skills um, allow people to feel safe, as it were. I think that safe is a good word. And safety is something that we all need to feel for the sake of our well-being right. uh, and resilience so going forward. He so or training. she contact Lifeline? Is that, is Lifeline Harvard Hawkesbury does this particular um, a version of accidental counselor, yes. Mm. And I guess the next, the next question is, um, how, how can people contribute and get involved? Yeah. Um, and secondly... Do people like you go into corporations and actually put on a educational program? Yes. Um, so I personally spend usually five days a week uh, in literally within organisations across Australia, mm. large and small, delivering this uh, particular training. That's okay. that's kind of my main uh, focus. Right. But how can people, individuals, get involved? Mm. You know, organisations like ours and many other community organisations absolutely cannot exist without our volunteers. Mm. But not everybody's got the time or the ability right now to volunteer, as Mm. it were. But that doesn't mean that individuals can't make an enormous difference. Mm. They really, really can. Mm. By having these skills, by becoming educated in these skills, being aware of others around them and really being able in those moments of need to support Great um, initiative. Wish you uh, lots of luck with it. Thank you. Okay, it's time for our question of the week, which we've neglected for, for quite some time, Paul, but we're back on track. So listening to you and Paul, our reader writes, over the last six to nine months, general advice seems to be that holding some cash in today's market is not a bad portfolio strategy. I only have a small portfolio of some... $450,000, a lot of people think that's a big one, with a cash holding of 
$1,000. The balance is divided into shares and fixed interest by way of managed funds and direct shares. Is my cash component percentage adequate or do you think it should be increased in light of market expectations over the next year or so? Thank you. Greg Wade, Penrith. Look, this is a really good question and there's no right or wrong answer to this. Personally, I think always holding some cash is, a, is important for two reasons. One is I think you've got to be in a situation where you can meet any unexpected uh, you know, liability or something. So, yeah. for example, uh, sub, you suddenly need money for some reason. Uh, you don't want to have to sell your investments to do that. Uh, and, and secondly, yeah, you might hold more cash simply because you think markets are a little toppish and you want the flexibility to invest in something else yeah. in due course. So yeah. it's not wrong to have a lot of cash. I think for a superannuant, I don't think Greg is, but I think if he was drawing a pension, mm. I think I'd advise a lot of superannuants to have at least probably the next year's pension yep. in cash all yep. the time, right, as, as, as a minimum, mm. simply because it gives yourself time to you don't want to have to draw down, sell assets to, yeah. to pay out your pension. I think where he's at, probably, I don't know much more, 50 out of 450 is probably a little of the high side. And we don't know how, how old he no, is either, not, Paul. But it's if not, he was young, I'd say too much. If he's a bit older, I'd say probably okay. Yeah, I mean, look, if 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 he was bearish on markets, uh, I'd probably put it into term deposits and stuff and give himself a little higher running yield. Mm. But I don't, I don't think it's wrong. I think generally, I'm assuming he's probably still in the accumulation phase. I guess 50 is probably a little on the high side, unless he's feeling the market is a bit toppish. But mm. uh, that's the way I'd read it, Peter. So yeah. what do you? Well, I'm, I'm trying to work out whether this is actually inside a self-managed super fund. It's a lot of money to have outside, isn't it? It's a portfolio of 450k. I think if, if it's inside a self-managed super fund and he is maybe he's 50, still not near retirement, I wouldn't be holding 50. I'd be I'd be playing the market on the supposition I think the market's going up. You're right, Paul. If he feels the market's toppy. Uh, I think if I, I thought the market was toppy, I'd probably be holding 100k, waiting to buy on the dip. Yeah, that's what I would be doing. But look, it's certainly not a dumb holding. I, I just it just depends on what your particular strategy is. How old you are is another critical issue as well. That's right, and you never you, you never want to be a forced seller. No. So if you have to draw down money from the fund or your other investments to cover costs, always a good idea to have some cash on hand. So I never have zero cash, hmm. never. But uh, look, I, 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 fifty out of four fifty, probably a little on the high side. Yeah, exactly right. I, I couldn't, I couldn't dispute that. Now, if you have a question to ask myself or Paul, please send them through to podcast at switzer.com.au. And that's the program for today, Paul. Thanks for joining. Britain time, Britain time.